Welcome to another episode of Quantum Coffee, where we discuss the deeper, unanswerable questions of the universe. I'm your host, Joe Holly. Grab some coffee, open your mind, and enjoy the show. When you feel afraid of something and you don't do it, you're teaching your body, this is a boundary that we can't cross. And so your domain of what you could do gets smaller. And then if you learn that that's your relationship to resistance, you just get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where you don't feel that you can do anything. And that's when a mental illness can tend to erupt because it's trying to force you out of this false container that you've put yourself in because of your resistance to doing the things that you are called to do. That was Eric Godsey. And all I can say is, wow, get ready to have your mind blown. Eric is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. And it was a true pleasure having the opportunity to sit down with him to discuss some of these unanswerable questions of the universe. He's a man on a mission to change the way we all view mental illness in this country. And as a Jungian psychologist, he has a very interesting perspective on this experience we call life. He is a coach, an author, a mentor, and a friend. He continues to inspire me to get outside my comfort zone and head towards the things I fear the most, knowing that that's where I will find my true purpose and meaning in this life, or what he likes to call his dharma. So go grab a fresh cup of coffee and get ready to embark on your own hero's journey and enjoy this very special episode of Quantum Coffee. Eric Godsey, what's up, brother? Joe, thank you so much for having me on, man. I love you. Yeah, thanks for coming on uh, Quantum Coffee. I know that this is going to be a great conversation. You have an amazing perspective on all of these unanswerable questions of the universe (laughs) that I know you love discussing and I love discussing. So we'll jump right into it. Um, First, tell the listeners about yourself, like who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your life story. For sure. Probably a lot, but... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so it'll take me 29 years to tell you the full story, but I'll, I'll, take, I'll tell it as Just the cliff notes, I'm... just the cliff notes. Um, I got a degree in cognitive psychology. And after I graduated, I debated for a couple of years about whether or not to get a PhD in clinical psychology. I read a book called Sapiens, and I realized that almost all of um, higher education science is dependent upon funding from the government or from the military, or from uh, private institutions that have agendas. And so I realized if I want to do the type of science that I feel called to do, uh, I should be able to pay myself. And then I won't be um, held and influenced by money. And so I decided to not go to graduate school to learn how to run a company in a way that would allow me to do the type of research that I want to do that led me to working at Onnit with Aubrey Marcus, and um, I have now recently left on it, started my own company, helping Aubrey write a book. We'll be writing my own book after this book. And I'm really starting to see the manifestation of the dream that I had uh, a couple years ago, which is um, I basically want to create my own personal 
quote unquote institution that pays for my life, but then allows me to do the type of research into psychology and spirituality. And truly my core question is what is the most adaptive story that a human can tell themselves? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. And that's kind of what's going on. And it's beautiful to witness your growth and your dream coming to re- coming into reality as well and how much work you put into it. Um, but let's talk about the stories because that's really what this this whole reality really is, right? It's the story of how we interact with it and the perception and the lens in which we view it. Absolutely. Um, so I'd like to ask three questions to kind of create this arc. The first one is going to be kind of what the, what's the purpose of life? Like what is reality? Why are we here? Second will be around the idea of God, our higher power, our source, and your kind of journey and belief system around that. And then we'll finish it up with what, ha- what do you think happens when you die? Um, these unanswerable questions of the universe. So <laughs> what is, uh, what's the whole point? Like, why, why are we here? What's the purpose of this whole experience? Yeah. So uh, there's a couple of things that seem to be undeniable. Uh, It seems undeniable that we experience. It seems undeniable that our experience is deeply affected by our biology and that we have a biology. Um, Our biology seems to have preset drives for things that it wants and things that it wants to avoid. But it also seems possible that a tremendous amount of learning and reprogramming is able to happen on top of that. But there seems to be some basic drives in the biology that affects the undeniable fact that we experience. It seems to be that each of us are born with a unique body into a unique set of experiences that program us in a way where we have a unique yearning. And the way that I like to think about this is that each of us is a question that the universe is asking itself. And the way that we choose to live is our answer to the question, what is the purpose of your life? And so I think fundamentally, the meaning of life is created by you through your actions, period. Everyone is actually a philosopher and everyone is answering that question right now, every day, and they have been since the beginning. And it's humans trying to figure out how to dance to the song of life in a way that brings forth enough meaning in them that they choose not to kill themselves. There's an existential philosopher who said the only meaningful question in all of philosophy is whether or not to kill yourself. And the fact that you aren't is that you are continuing to answer the question well enough that life is meaningful, that life has a purpose, and your actions are evidence and a testament to that. What do you say to the people that, that feel like they they're struggling to find purpose or they spend their whole life looking for their purpose and they feel like there's nothing out there. I know you're getting deep into, you know, the cause of of depression. And I know that's probably one of the big things is people feeling like there's no reason to live. So what, like, what are some like tools or things that you've learned about to help people on that journey? Yeah. Everyone that I've ever spoken to 
when I start to talk about this idea that there's a whisper inside of you that asks you to do things that you know you're afraid to do, but that you know are good for you. I've yet to meet a single human who does who did not understand what I was talking about. Mm. And so step one is learn to listen to that thing and then to begin to act on its behalf, even though you're afraid, and then just watch what happens. And I think that that is step one to finding purpose. That's step one to finding meaning is listen to the whisper and then just run the faith experiment for a month. That if you're called to do something internally that, you're, that your ego is afraid to do, but that you know is good for you, just do it for one month. And just, if you want, journal every day and just take stock of how your life has been unfolding. And I'm willing to bet that 100% of people, you know what? Okay, 99% of people, if you do this for a month, you emotionally and spiritually are going to be in such a drastically different place than you were a month ago. Because when you sit down and talk with people who have depression, let's say, if you talk and sit, if you sit and talk with most people, you will find that there is some whisper that has been whispering to them for years, dude, maybe decades. Why is it so hard for people to listen to that voice? Like what's... Is I it think, just the neural pathways that connect? Like, do they even have a choice? Because these habits get so ingrained, right? People have a choice, 100%. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, our culture, a part of our cultural story is that you should feel good. And if you don't feel good, you need to take something to fix that. Because our cultural story about mental health is actually a philosophy of being. meaning. They're making a philosophical assertion about what it means to be human. And they're making the argument that you shouldn't feel discomfort. You shouldn't feel grief or whatever it is. And so I think a lot of people have been taught that you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. And so when you feel that resistance, it's a message to turn in the other direction. And I think that fundamental idea is one of the most cancerous ideas that you can have in the psyche. Because what I'm now learning, and I've only started doing this the last three years. And if you look at my life, before I started doing the things that I was afraid to do that I was called to do, and then after, the explosion upwards towards my dream life has been like stupefying. And it's because I've started to, when I feel resistance... Instead of instinctually, what I did for 27 years was let me make up a story with my face to justify why not to do that thing. Now when I feel it, I lean into it. I go do it. And often my e- like something just happened this weekend where my ego wanted to give up. My soul was like, nah, fam, keep going. And I was, I was viscerally angry with God temporarily Because I know if I feel that call, I'm going to go do it, period. And so I think people have learned that if they feel resistance, that they shouldn't do it. And there's a great story here that I want to share. A shaman 
was explaining fear to Carl Jung. And the way that he did this is there was a scorpion on the ground and the shaman took a stick and he drew a circle around the scorpion. Scorpions have a biological instinct that there's something about an indention in the ground that they won't cross it. So when he draws the circle around the scorpion, the scorpion starts to walk around the inside border of the circle. The shaman cuts it in half. So now the amount of space that the scorpion can move is cut in half. And it starts to run around the border even quicker. It becomes more frantic. He cuts it in half again. It gets even more frantic. And he keeps cutting it in half until it can't move anymore. And then it spins around in a circle and stabs itself to death. Wow. When you feel afraid of something and you don't do it, you're teaching your body, this is a boundary that we can't cross. And so mm-hmm. your domain of what you could do gets smaller. And then if you learn that that's your relationship to resistance, you just get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where you don't feel that you can do anything. And that's when a mental illness can tend to erupt because it's trying to force you out of this false container that you've put yourself in because of your resistance to doing the things that you are called to do. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. I tell people all the time, like, and I love the quote on the other side of fear lies freedom. And I have the same, very similar journey. I mean, I, all throughout my football career is always having to push myself through my own self-limiting beliefs outside my comfort zone. But then when I decided to walk away from the game and get in a van and travel the country and like, I, I, I realized that what I want to accomplish the most in life and what my dreams are, they're scary. And fear and resistance is the compass, right? It's pointing us towards what we were meant to do. And yeah, that's beautiful that uh, <laughs> that scorpion. Mm. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about God. Let's, let's talk, talk about, about source. God. Let's talk about the higher power that is this experience. Um, you know, I'm, yeah. Go ahead and share your point of view on all of that and your journey with it. Yeah, man. So um, I remember being seven and somebody describing to me what heaven was. And the way that they described it was, there's this place that you go and you die. That's all white. And, it's, and the only thing that you can feel is love. And everyone that you've ever loved will be there. And you'll get to be with them forever. And it was told to me in a way where it was meant to make me feel good. I remember going to bed that night. Trying to wrap my mind around what forever meant. And I remember trying to understand what it would be like to have to wake up every day for eternity. And the feeling, it traumatized me. It, it is the most traumatizing experience that I had as a child. Was that I felt like I was destined that the best possible way that this life could play out is that I would have to go do something forever. And there was just something about it to my brain that filled my body with despair, like spiritual despair. And I, and I started crying. And then I prayed to the God that I thought was forcing me to have to face this reality to help me forget so I could fall asleep. And that went on for like 10 days. 
where like at night I would start to think about eternity. I would be filled with this indescribable emotion that I was too young to understand, but it was the worst emotion that I knew. And then I would pray to the God to help me forget. And then eventually it just kind of like went into the background. And then as a teenager, I was the raging atheist. And I didn't understand why, and, but you'll see the pattern. And so anyone who would try to tell me anything about God, I was fucking ready to quote Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Bertrand Russell. And I made people cry in high school because of how I would argue with them about God. And I thought I was like, it's so funny, man. Um, I still prayed every night. While really? I was a ra- right. And the way that I prayed was I never asked for anything. I would just say thank you to something. And I never realized the cognitive dissonance of doing those two things. What I can see in hindsight is no one had articulated an understanding of what this force I always felt was. And I would just basically say like, that's not it. Mm. Um, And it wasn't until... So I started smoking weed in college when I was a freshman and that started to open me up. I had this like spiritual awakening listening to a Joe Rogan joke. I didn't know who Joe Rogan was at the time. I had not ever heard a podcast, but he was on a Netflix special. He made this joke about, we all think we're smart, but if the electricity went out, you would do exactly what I would do. You would sit here and you would wait. You'd be like, these fucking idiots can't keep the lights on. But no one in this room knows how fucking electricity works. No one in this room could make this microphone if it broke. No one in this room knows how this fucking light bulb operates. We are not the smart people. We are the idiots. And if the smart people died, we would die in a month. And for the first time in my life, I had this existential reckoning moment where I realized I am not competent at anything fundamental. I'm good at arguing and reading. And that's basically the extent and playing basketball. Like those are the things I have competence in. But I realized for the first time how fucking fragile my existence was. And then that set the stage of me really beginning to read and to allow myself to learn instead of just thinking that I knew all the answers. And then that eventually led me to podcasts. Podcast eventually led me to do psychedelics. And psychedelics eventually led me to studying Carl Jung. And then Carl Jung is the thing that broke me open because he gave me an articulation of this feeling that I've always felt that made sense. And then once I found Carl Jung and I started diving into my dreams, I started using Jungian symbology to understand psychedelic experiences. I started using Jungian psychology to understand other people's psyches. I started interpreting other people's dreams. And now it feels like I have this intimate, visceral connection to divinity. And like, I feel so connected to it. And here's kind of how I see it. Your conscious mind is 1% of your psyche. If you imagine your psyche is a big circle, your conscious mind is 1%. Your subconscious mind is about 9%. And the subconscious mind is anything that you could be aware of right now, but you're not. 
For example, if I say, how does your left pinky toe feel? You weren't just thinking about it before. Now you are. That's an example of something that was in your subconscious mind. 90% of your psyche is the unconscious mind. And the unconscious mind is the stuff that divides your cells. It's what makes your heart beat. It's what automatically calculates light and sound and vibration to give you a sense of vision. It's all of these unconscious processes that are operating in order for you to even function. The ego is the avatar of the conscious mind. It's, it's like the controller of that 1%. There is an equivalent to the ego in the unconscious mind. And Jung calls it the capital S self. That thing is the closest thing that we will get to knowing God. That God is this un- indescribable, boundarelessness, infinite essence, and it fragments into each individual psyche as this shard. And this shard is the self, capital S self. It's the thing in you that creates your dreams. It's the thing in you that generates your intuitions. It's the thing in you that animates the processes in your body to function in the way where you can even hear me right now and form any type of thought. It speaks to you through synchronicity. It speaks to you through admiration and inspiration and awe. All of these are emotions that you don't pick to feel. They seize you. And I think that this shard of divinity is our soul. And that as the ego learns to have a connection to the soul, you experience grace in your life and beauty. And fundamentally, like my core philosophical axiom is pragmatism. And it's essentially, I don't believe I have the cognitive or biological apparatus to perceive objective truth. Therefore, all of my ideas are sub, are, are temporary, are, are tools. Anything that I believe is essentially a tool for my psyche. And does using that tool in the world provide me more of the life that I want? If yes, it's useful, I will continue to hold it as a tool. If no, and it's not useful, I will put it down. This perception of God and the soul and the self and how to relate to it has been one of the most effective, useful tools I've ever used in my life. So I continue to use it. But the truth is, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I know, like, what is, what is the objective reality, right? Like, what do we actually know about anything? And yeah, I had a similar experience, this idea that God was separate, some man up in the sky that was judgmental and shameful, but this idea that we are all a piece of creation creating itself is beautiful. You talked about the ego and the spirit and the soul and the unconscious and the psyche. Is it like, where's the separation? Like there's a piece, a divine spark within each of us that is living out this experience that is guiding us you're saying to a higher purpose, a reason to exist and why we're here. But then there's this ego thing that is getting in the way, which is a construct of our identity from our experiences that we've had in this life. And so like, what is, 
For sure. Yeah. Well, like why? Why? <laughs> so the fundamental like hypothesis that most people intuitively or implicitly agree to believe is that the foundational unit of reality is matter. And then matter eventually gets to a point that can create consciousness. What if consciousness is the fundamental block of reality? And that as matter gets complex enough, it can experience consciousness. If that's the case, imagine we are this type of biological animal that has been subject to the laws of evolution on this planet for the last, you know, 10 million years or whatever. The ego seems to be the story packed together by evolution for this type of body to be successful enough at reproducing within the environment that it evolved in and that those are the basic parameters of how the ego functions. And we eventually have gotten to a point where we can now perceive ourselves. We have gotten to a complexity where we are able to be conscious. And so you can imagine that there's this, there's this ancient monkey inside of us that has the jealousy, that has the rage, that has the, I want to be the best so I can fuck as many people as possible, even though that's something that you can't articulate, but we have genes inside of us. There's this book called The Selfish Gene that was written by Richard Dawkins like 40 years ago. And he basically makes the argument that your genes don't care about your happiness. Your genes care about reproducing and reconfiguring their genetic code to go into the next generation because they're in a, in a constant war against viruses. So to take a moment here, before there was sexual reproduction, there was only asexual reproduction, which is you copy your entire genetic code and you just make a new version of you. The moment viruses arose in the biological environment on Earth, if there was a virus that could hack the gene code of one organism and all those organisms asexually reproduced, it would just wipe out the whole environment. And so the idea in evolutionary biology is that that pressure created the usefulness of sexual reproduction, which is when two sets of genes get together, recombine themselves in a new way that produces a new third. And that genetic complexity becomes a defense against viruses. And so the fundamental war that's been happening through biological life on this planet has been genes and viruses trying to outcompete each other. And so that force has led to sexual reproduction, has led to all the evolutionary pressures that have created us in the way that we are created, where we care about status, we care about how other people see us, we care about our power physically, we want to reproduce, we have all this jealousy and anger around trying to contain our reproduction being safe. And all those things are the primal ingredients that make up the ego. But we've gotten to a place where we have consciousness. And the consciousness can start to look at the ego and be like, is 
are these rules actually conducive to the environment that we are in towards the goals that we want? And we live in a time where we are no longer in the type of environment that our biology evolved to be in, but we have consciousness. And so I feel like that's the fundamental tension inside us is that we have these bundles of evolutionary programs that are entirely aimed at helping our genes get into the next generation. And then we have awareness or consciousness or spirit. And we can feel that like my anger is actually not producing love in the world or my jealousy is not producing love in the world or my compulsory seeking of status is not producing love in the world. We're able to use language and stories and myths to think about a way to be that is greater than what we are that would ask us to transcend our evolutionary programs. And that's the point of human history that we are currently in, right? We have this awareness of the stories and we can question those stories and change those stories with our awareness. What, like, what do you say to people that are so stuck in their stories, right? And they like project all their stories outwardly and they don't, they don't almost, they don't connect to the awareness of looking at the story as a story. There's no like detachment. They are the story living itself out. And like, is there any way to put a mirror in front of those kind of people and be like, yo, like question the story, right? Like that's what we're yeah. going through. And that's the, the collective raising of this consciousness and awareness and this next step of evolution. Like how do we help navigate that? There's a couple of things that come up. One is lead by example. When you're interacting with them, as soon as you recognize that you're in a story, share it with them. Like, this is the story that I was telling myself about how you acted that made me feel X and share your process of how you became aware of the story and how you put down the story. That's step one. That will always be more effective than ever trying to tell them anything directly. Um, step two or a second thing that could be done is like the reason Zen koans have even been created was to help the modern man who is addicted to thinking to break their thinking to then help them realize that there's something that is still there after the thinking part breaks. Like most of us believe that we are our thoughts and we have to be forced into an experience where our thoughts either evaporate or they get so intense that they break and then we have the visceral felt experience that there is still something happening in the absence of any storytelling. And a way that you can bring people to that consistently and powerfully is psychedelics. I was just going to say, tell me more about that. And that would, is so powerful in being able to detach you from the stories. What it seems to be is that there is a pattern of electrical activity in the brain that is highly correlated with this storytelling function and it's called the default mode network. And psychedelics seem to inhibit that system from properly working and that is often recorded or described as ego death, which is just essentially like most of my quote unquote ego deaths have not been violent at all. It's that I'm in an experience 
And I don't realize until an hour later, once my ego comes back, I just spent an hour outside looking at grass and did not have a single self-referencing thought. I, my ego died for an hour and I wasn't even aware of it because there was no ego to even perceive that it was. I was just simply so in the being of being that there was no Eric. But ego deaths can also be very violent with psychedelics. Um, but everyone actually experiences micro ego deaths every day. Like if you watch a great movie, you forget that you are you especially if you go to a theater, which is a modern day cathedral, and maybe you smoke some weed before or whatever, but you I'm really gonna... allow yourself to just merge and you forget that you are you. Mm. And so like we have, we have evolved to be able to tap into this type of experience. Like ecstatic dance is a powerful way to get into that. Breath work is a powerful way to get to that space. But there's lots of modalities. You can look at all the rituals from all the religions that have any type of initiation process. Humans have been trying to find things to do with the body to inhibit that thinking part, to connect them to the fact that there's still something happening inside of them that is greater than their story. And modern humans are desperately missing those practices in their daily life. That's what we call flow state now, right? Is this yep. connection to like detaching from the thinking brain and just being so connected to the moment and flow. And like, I know you're an athlete and me playing football, like when I'm out there and playing the game and the, and the ball snapped, like all this stuff is happening and I am just responding. Like, it's just like a movie happening in front of me. I don't know why it's I know best. what to do. Oh my God, it's such a good feeling. And trying to recreate that and find that, I mean, you know, meditation, journaling, the, the tools that you just talked about. Um, yeah, it is this fascinating thing. Um, forgot what I was going to say. You blow my mind with so many things, son. <laughs> it's like I tried to try to track. Okay, let's go. Um, so the story that we think is ourself our identity is this ego construct that is this conditioned story that's created when we we're born. Let's talk about, I mean, you talked about ego death and that story dying, that identity dying and being so connected. Is there, is there like an identity in the essence of who we are, like in the soul? Like, is there something that when we die passes along once our ego identity construct of this physical plane we're living in now and the physical body passes away, is there a personality structure that goes on? Or is it we go right. back into oneness? Or is it right. nothingness? Like what happens yeah. after? So my opinion on this has just opened up to a new area just in the last couple of weeks. And so um, my previous belief was when you die, there is no part of you that has any personality to it that will continue because the personality is completely developed by the body. And that when you die, something continues, but nothing that is recognizable in any degree that you would call Eric or that you would call Joe or that you would call whoever. And it's people desperately wanting to hold on to their sense of self. And I, think, and I thought it was a denial of death. 
one of the things that I've learned through ayahuasca is my atheism and my radical belief that nothing of personality substance continues after death is because I'm terrified of eternity or I was terrified of eternity. And that goes back to your story you told earlier about when you were a kid. Uh Exactly. But um, I've been reading this book kind of on and off the last couple of weeks called The Journey of Souls. And it's this psychotherapist who puts people in who have had near-death experiences, um, or no, he actually does it to anyone, into trance states. And then he takes them back to the life that they had before this life to retell the story of their death. And what he found was that there's a tremendous amount of consistency in everyone's stories about what happens when they die. Now, the skeptic in me would say that what he's finding is a archetype in the collective unconscious that's being explained in the same way. But the fundamental story is that when people die, they feel like they're outside of their body and they're looking at their dead body and they still feel their complete personality that existed when they were in the body. But then eventually they will be called upwards towards a gate or a portal that's like white light. And as they go through this journey inside this tunnel, they start to forget a lot of the personality that was tangled up in the emotions of the body, but they can still remember it. But even beneath that, there's some shape to consciousness. It's not just pure consciousness. It's still, there is still this felt sense of like, I have friends. I have guides. I am still an I. And so maybe if I really try to feel into what my experience is like, there's my ego. But then there's my, you could say, spirit. And spirit is not the same thing as awareness. Whereas awareness is just electricity. Spirit is the shape of my light bulb. And then the ego is how my light bulb refracts through the mirror of my experiences. That's kind of a way to think about it. And that my spirit seems to have a shape. It's not just completely unbiased goo that has no form or structure. And that it's my spirit that reacts to the feelings and emotions generated by my ego. And that this life is about learning whatever my spirit needed to learn from this ego experience, from this body that has this experiences, it's trying to teach the spirit. And that when the body dies, the spirit slowly starts to like, it's almost like it steps out of the biological suit and it can remember what it learned in that life. but it continues on. And that's a new interesting way to think about how this whole thing unfolds that I've never allowed myself to consider until a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago, what happened a couple of weeks ago that, that brought that into your sphere of understanding? Someone recommended that book for like the fifth time and I was like, fuck it. What so was the book it. called? It's called A Journey of Souls. I forget. A Journey of Souls. Yeah. So the soul, you know, because I, you know, my parents... And I grew up in this Christian faith and 
you know, they, they believe in the idea of eternity, but the soul is born in this existence and has a blink of an eye human existence. And then it lives on for eternity, which never really made sense to me. And I've definitely been connecting with the fact that, you know, the soul exists, eternity is both ways, right? It can't just be in our linear thinking mind forward. Like eternity is forever. Interesting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it can't just be a start point and then into eternity. So it's like, where That's did our funny. souls come from? And whether they decided to come in to learn these lessons or have a physical experience. And then, yeah, I just, I've been connected with that because I've been going back and forth, whether like, you know, when I was a kid, I always I, I had this idea that when you died, you're, you're just blackness. Like, and I would think about that. It was very like, what is blackness like? And then, you know, with the work with psychedelics and you realize that the blackness that happens is the, is the ego, is the story of who you are. And when you can deconstruct that and detach that, and that's why I love, you know, the Zen Buddhism of unattachment, non-attachment. It's like when you don't attach those stories and you start questioning everything, then you can kind of connect with this. You're not attached to the story of who you are. So death becomes not as scary a thing because you know that there's this, like the only thing that's really dying is the physical body and the stories along with it. But there is this essence. I mean, I, I haven't really been confronted with death that much. So I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's definitely still a lot to work through there. But yeah, it's fascinating, man. Uh, really appreciate you taking all the time. Um, we have a few minutes. I want to give you a chance to kind of explain what you're working on now. I know it's a huge passion project for you. And I know the more you can kind of speak about it and speak it into existence is the, and the more people that can hear it, the better. So absolutely I'll give you a few minutes to kind of share about that. And then maybe we can, if we get good feedback, we can hop on another call at some point and do another episode to. just about this. Yeah. Okay. So, um, it's really interesting that you asked me about this today because I've been disconnected from this for the last couple of weeks because of romantic problems, quote unquote. And then the realization today was commit back to your dharma, let the relationship take care of itself, stop focusing on it and just allow it to unfold in the way that it's trying to unfold. And you just go do your fucking shit. And so my dharma call has been doing the research on mental illness for Aubrey Marcus's book has brought me to the realization that the chemical imbalance theory for any mental disorder has been proven false. And it was proven false 30 years ago. And then I found out like, why do most people believe this? And then I learned the history of the American Psychiatric Association in conjunction with pharmaceutical companies, in conjunction with the FDA, in conjunction with the zeitgeist that was created with the discovery of antibiotics that all these things merge together in a way that has produced a current story that most people believe, where they believe they are essentially a biological machine. And if the biological machine doesn't feel good, that it should consume pills from corporations that are told to them will cure you of not feeling well. And that antibiotics were like the biggest revolution in biological medicine in the last 150 years. Antibiotics cure you of bacterial infection. And then we got the words antipsychotic, 
anti-anxiety and anti-depression. And it was sold to the public like this was the psychological equivalent of an antibiotic. But if you look at the amount of people disabled by mental illness in 1955, which was the year before the first antipsychotic came out, it was about 400,000 people. As of three years ago, the, the most up-to-date census that I saw data on this showed that 11 million people are disabled from mental illness. Imagine if we, if, if 400,000 people a year die from bacterial infection, then we were told we were given antibiotics. And then in 2018, 11 million people a year were dying of bacterial infections. We would all say, that is not working. Yeah. And what's wild, man, is the DSM, which is the book that all psychiatrists and doctors have to use in order to get paid by an insurance company when they help someone with a mental illness. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. It's written by the American Psychiatric Association. In 1980, it wrote its third version. The first two versions, their whole idea of mental illness was that it was conflicts in the psyche. It was based off of Freudian psychology. In 1980, because of some cultural pressure reasons, psychiatry had the potential of actually not being a profession anymore because there was some stuff going on. So the APA made a collective effort to change the story that it was telling the public about itself and telling itself about itself. And so in early 1980s, they committed to, we are doctors and we treat biological diseases and mental illness or mental disorders are now mental disease. Mm. And the book that they wrote, the third version, the DSM, made the argument that all of these, something like 280 disorders, are caused by biological diseases. The person who led creating the DSM-3 admits and I have the quotes, um, there was not a single scientific discovery between the DSM-2 and the DSM-3 that found a biological cause for any mental disorder. So that means that every mental disorder in the DSM-3, there was no biological discovery by a scientist proving that any of these things were caused by, by a biological disease. Still to this day in 2020, we have not found a single scientific discovery that proves the biological cause of any of the major mental disorders that we are all given and we are told are caused by a chemical imbalance. And so we have a story where people are told that their mental disorder is due to a biological disease and that the answer is medication and it is not working and it's making us sicker. And there's, it, it's a denial of the human experience. And what I'm finding as the solution is, number one, the revolution that has happened in um, biological medicine in the last 10 to 15 years is this complete re-understanding of chronic stress and chronic inflammation. That the core of almost all your autoimmune disease all of your pain disease, depending on who you talk to, cancers, is are you chronically inflamed? And what I'm finding is that many mental disorders correlate highly with an inflamed brain. 
And so step one of this new approach to mental health is treat your mental health the same as you would a chronic biological condition in that you go do the practices that reduce inflammation. Step two is learn and create a story of hope. And that's the thing that I feel most called to offer models on is I personally think the hero's journey is the most effective meta story that we have to give the ego, to teach the ego how to transform and die and be reborn to itself over and over again and continue to learn. And then step three of this new model is to teach people how to touch transcendence. And it's what we were talking about earlier. Transcendence is realizing that there is something going on inside of you that is incredibly larger and more beautiful than the part of you that thinks and tells stories. And like what they're finding at John Hopkins with the mushroom studies is that people's depression a year after having this experience is still improved without them having to take any chemical over the course of a year. And to the degree that their depression is improved is correlated to the intensity of the felt sense of the mystical experience. And so what it seems to be is fundamentally, if we can help humans connect to their transcendence, that heals or at least reduces dramatically many of the symptoms that are called mental disorders. Because really, man, I think the majority of mental disorders are the ego being preoccupied with the ego and forgetting about God. Hmm. And we come full circle, son. My man, I appreciate you sharing all that. Um, I will be conscious of your time and let you go, man. I really appreciate your input and the work that you are doing in this world is very inspiring to me. Um, And I'm here to support you in any way I can. I'm excited to uh, continue the conversation at some point and dive deeper into this as you unfold the story even more. But any final words to the listeners about all of this? Sum it up, wrap it up for everyone. You are being guided by something divinely intelligent and it speaks to you through that whisper. That whisper that you can hear is asking you to do things that you are afraid to do but that you know are the way for you to become who you are meant to be. Go do the thing. Mm. I love you, brother. I love you too, man. Thank you so much. All right, buddy. Thanks for listening to another episode of Quantum Coffee. I hope you enjoyed. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Reach out to me on Instagram at joe.holly or email me at joe.holly.newsletter at gmail.com. That'll all be listed in the show notes. If you have anyone that you'd like to hear on my podcast, reach out, send them my way. Also, if you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. Thanks again for all the continued support. So much love and gratitude. Peace.